Hi, and welcome to Crash Course Catholicism, a podcast about Catholic teaching and why it makes sense. I'm your host, Caitlin West. Hello and welcome to episode 55 on Catholicism and feminism. So what we're going to do in today's episode, we're going to kind of briefly look over the history of feminism over the last century or so. And then we're going to look at what the church teaches about women and the role of women in society. And then finally, we're going to consider how those two things sit side by side, feminism and Catholicism. Can a Catholic call themselves a feminist? Is feminism compatible with Catholicism? So let's begin with the question, what actually is feminism? Because we need to define our terms before we start using them. And one thing that will become clear as we go over the history of feminism is that this term has covered an incredibly and increasingly broad range of ideologies and social and political movements. But if we strip all of that away, is there a kind of fundamental definition of what feminism actually is? Well, if you go to like a dictionary and find a dictionary definition, Pretty much anywhere you look, it will say roughly the same thing. So this is the definition taken from the Oxford English Dictionary. It says, feminism is the advocacy of equality of the sexes and the establishment of the political, social and economic rights of the female sex. So at its heart, that is what feminism is, equality of the sexes and the rights of the female sex. So with that in mind, let's go through the last hundred years or so of feminism and have a look at how that term has been used over time. So feminism is usually divided into four different waves, and each of those waves become kind of broader and more difficult to define as we go along. So it it might be a bit tricky, but I'm going to try to just briefly summarize what each of those waves of feminism were about, because each of them were slightly different. So the first wave of feminism started at the end of the 1800s and the early 1900s, and it mainly revolved around women's right to vote, so the suffragette movement, and also to own property. That was the first wave of feminism. And then the second wave occurred between the 1960s and the 1980s. Now, this was a much broader wave of feminism, and it essentially boiled down to an attempt to sort of dispel the idea that men are superior to women. And this had many different consequences in social and political life. So the focus was on women having the right to work outside the home. Um, providing paid maternity leave, greater access to education for women, help with childcare, women being promoted to more high-ranking positions in the workplace, women doing work that men had traditionally done. There was also a focus on issues around domestic and sexual violence and an increase in things like women's shelters or legal avenues for women who were trying to escape from situations of domestic violence. Some other things that occurred during the second wave of feminism were contraception, So the pill was introduced. Also, no-fault divorce. So it was no longer necessary to give evidence of abuse or infidelity for a couple to break up. You could just break up because you weren't getting along anymore. And then finally, in the 1970s in the USA, we had the legalization of abortion with Roe versus Wade. So that was the second wave. The third wave occurred at the end of the 20th century, around the 90s. 
And this wave of feminism is very difficult to define because it was highly influenced by relativism and postmodernism. And the whole point kind of became that feminism and femininity is a very individual, diverse experience. So whatever femininity means to you, whatever feminism means to you. So there was a greater emphasis on the diverse female experience. And we start to hear the word intersectionality floating around. So intersectionality refers to the intersection of gender with sexuality, race and class. There was also an ideological separation of sex and gender. So sex is your physical bodily characteristics. And then gender is a performed social construct, a set of behaviors that we adopt that are not actually tied to our physical sex. So queer theory becomes more popular at this time. And there is also a greater emphasis on sexual freedom, especially female sexual freedom. And we start to hear terms like sex positivity floating around. So that's the third wave. And then the fourth wave occurred just over the last sort of decade or so. And the key thing about the fourth wave of feminism that differentiates it from the others is that suddenly the internet is a thing. So because the internet is available, suddenly women are able to start talking about and sharing their experiences of objectification or abuse. And women are able to kind of band together online. There's a greater emphasis on online activism. Also, because of the increase of social media, we start to talk more publicly about idealized body types and the pressures on women to to look and behave in a certain way. There also continues to be this growing emphasis on intersectionality, particularly on the experiences of women of color, same-sex oriented women and transgender people. So (laughs) we can see just from that very brief summary that the term feminism over time covers a more and more broad range of ideologies and social political movements. And we can also probably see, like if you've been following this podcast from the beginning, you can probably tell at a glance that there is both good and bad in there. There are things that are totally compatible with Catholicism. So things like fighting against domestic and sexual violence or women's right to an education or to vote and own property, all of those things are completely compatible with Catholicism. But then there are also some things that are less compatible with Catholicism, things like contraception, abortion, etc. So rather than go through and analyze each of the different elements of feminism, what we're going to do now is kind of set all of that social political stuff aside and spend some time thinking about what the church actually teaches us about women and the role of women in society. So, Let's begin with point 369 of the Catechism. It says, Man and woman have been created in perfect equality as human persons, in their respective beings as man and woman. Being man or being woman is a reality which is good and willed by God. Man and woman possess an inalienable dignity, Man and woman are both with one and the same dignity in the image of God. In their being man and being woman, they reflect the creator's wisdom and goodness. So first and foremost, men and women are equal. They are created in perfect equality as human persons. Now, what do we mean by that? Do we mean that men and women are the same? Because that's how many secular feminists have interpreted this idea of equality as a kind of sameness. But that's not exactly the case. And we'll go on in a second to talk about how men and women are different. But the differences between men and women 
don't make them unequal. It's not like there's a superior and inferior sex. Men and women have a shared human dignity. So what does that mean to have human dignity? Well, the catechism tells us that every human being is made in the image of God. To be made in the image of God means that we all have a spiritual soul, an intellect and free will. And our intellect and will is the foundation of our human dignity. This is what differentiates us from other animals. Now, human beings, we have an intellect and free will for a reason. And this is a really key point that is easy to lose sight of. God has given us an intellect and free will, not so that we can just do whatever we want and live our best lives regardless of everyone else. God has given us an intellect and a free will so that we might be able to know and love him and to become holy, to become perfected in our personhood. Pope John Paul II, in an apostolic letter called Mulieris Dignitatum, writes that being a person means striving towards self-realization, which can only be achieved through a sincere gift of self. It sounds like a paradox that we can only achieve self-realization through giving ourselves. He says, to say that man is created in the image and likeness of God means that man is called to exist for others, to become a gift. This is the key that so many people lose sight of. The whole point of my having an intellect and a will is that I am able to freely and joyfully give myself to others and through that self-giving become happy and holy. And this is true of men as well. Sometimes we're afraid to say that women need to give themselves because there's this fear that they'll be dominated or ruled by men. But men are called just as much as women to use the gifts that God has given them to give themselves to others, including the women in their lives. So the differences between men and women orient us towards that self-giving in particular ways. And in order to give ourselves in those ways, we all have certain fundamental rights that need to be respected. So what are those rights? Well, essentially, it boils down to the fact that men and women both have the right to freely exercise their intellect and their will and to make use of the gifts that God has given them. So in practical terms, that might look like receiving an adequate education, being provided with opportunities to contribute meaningfully to society through dignified work, allowing each person to use their gifts and talents to serve the human community. It means having the right to exercise your free will, to not be dominated or subordinated or abused or enslaved, to make free choices about how you live in the world within the bounds of morality. So here we can see that many of the aims of feminism around addressing domestic and sexual violence, providing women with an education and the right to work if they want to, fighting the sexual objectification or enslavement of women, these are excellent things that Catholics should care about and fight for whenever necessary. So men and women, because of their shared human dignity, have equal fundamental human rights. Now, here we return to the idea that men and women are not exactly the same. So the way that they use their intellect and will, the way that they exercise their gifts and talents is going to look different. There are differences in the biology, psychology, gifts and tendencies of men and women that are meaningful and that will influence the way that we live in the world. 
men and women are, to use the language of John Paul II, ontologically different. So ontology refers to being itself. In our very essence, men and women are different. Okay, so what's the foundation of that difference? Well, we don't have time to go into it deeply here. I mean, this is a topic that you could talk about for 20 million years and not get to the end of. There is so much in here. So I really urge you, if you want to think about this more, to read John Paul II's writings on women and check out the work of Christopher West and the Theology of the Body Institute. I'm going to put links to all of that in the show notes. I really, really recommend going more deeply into this stuff. But here's just a quick summary. Here's how I've heard Christopher West talk about it. This is a kind of paraphrase of a few things that I've heard him say. He says, okay, what is the one thing that a woman will never be able to do? Because there's nothing intrinsic in a woman that would stop her from being an astronaut or a CEO or a doctor. But one thing that she can never do is be a father. And what is one thing that a man will never be able to do? There's nothing intrinsic in a man that would prohibit him from being a teacher or a nurse or a stay-at-home dad. I say this as someone who was raised by a stay-at-home dad who did a wonderful job. One thing, though, that my dad will never be able to do is be a mother. A man can never be a mother. A woman can never be a father. And that is not meaningless. In our contemporary society, we have kind of conflated mothers and fathers, and we talk about it like there's no difference between them, but there absolutely is. And this isn't to say that all mothers are exactly the same and all fathers are exactly the same. However, there are certain tendencies and differences in mothers and fathers that make them fundamentally different from each other. And in order to understand the difference between men and women, we have to begin with the difference between a mother and a father, because this is the one thing that is unique to each sex. All women are called in some way to be mothers and all men are called in some way to be fathers. Now, that's not to say that all women are called to physically bear children. We're not just talking about biological motherhood here, although that's part of it. No one is saying that if you're single or if you can't have kids, then you're not a woman. That would be utterly ridiculous. When we talk about motherhood, We're also talking about spiritual motherhood. We're talking about the emotional, psychological, spiritual gifts that come more naturally to women and that allows them to give themselves to others in a way that is particularly feminine. So what is it to be a mother? You can think about someone in your life who has been like a mother to you. Maybe it's your actual mother or maybe it's a friend or a mentor or your boss. And think about the qualities that they possess. Or we can think about Mary, our lady, right? She's the perfect example. How does she live her motherhood? When we look at the Gospels, we see Mary's capacity to listen to the words of the angel Gabriel and the words of her son, to ponder things in her heart. We see her at the wedding at Cana, noticing the little things that will make others happy. We see her capacity to nurture the child Jesus, to carry him in her womb. We see her receiving good things, receiving the love and the grace of God. We see her capacity as a mother to teach, to form, to create. This doesn't mean that men are unable to do any of these things or that they shouldn't do them. They can and they should. But if we think about the women in our lives who live motherhood particularly well, we'll see that there are qualities and tendencies that often come more naturally to women. And very often, men who have these qualities have learned them from their interactions with women in their lives. Now, none of this 
means that all women experience and live out their femininity in the same way. So we can think of equality like nurturing. You might be a mum with your kids at home and maybe you have a capacity to listen to them talk about their day or show them affection or maybe you're really good at noticing the little things that make them happy. Or you might be a manager in a workplace. I had a manager like this once. She had this incredible ability to nurture the people in her team, to listen to them and to get to know them and to encourage their creativity and to lead them in a way that felt motherly, not stereotypically motherly. Like she didn't wear pink frilly lace and pat us on the head and call us sweetie pie. (laughs) She had a very strong and grounded and professional approach to her work, but she was also very nurturing. Or I think of my sister. She's a primary school teacher. And talk about pondering things in your heart. She carries every one of her students in her heart. She goes home at the end of every day and thinks about each one of them and their needs. And she understands their personalities so deeply. And what I'm trying to emphasize here is that even though there are shared tendencies among women, gifts that come more naturally to us, every woman will experience and live her femininity in her own way. So I don't want to be too prescriptive about what makes a woman motherly. And you'll notice in the writings of people like John Paul too, he avoids that prescriptiveness as well, because there is an element of mystery and individuality in the experience of women. It's also important to note that not every woman perfectly lives out her femininity. We're fallen human beings, so it's not like every single female perfectly demonstrates these qualities. However, in general, women have been given a unique capacity and we see it manifested in our biology. We have this ability to nurture, to carry, to receive good things, to notice little things, to bring warmth and heart into the world. And if you're a woman and you want to get in touch with your own femininity, that can be a really great place to start to think, how am I in my own individual way able to be that unique motherly gift to others? Now, if you're hearing all of this and you have a kind of gut reaction, like that knee-jerk response of frustration or resentment or even anger, firstly, I'm with you, okay? I have struggled with this a lot. And I think there are a few reasons why we tend to have that negative response to some of these ideas. Firstly, many of those typically female qualities have been presented to us in a stereotypical or distorted way in the media and popular culture. So we've seen depictions of feminine women as servile or passive or kind of mindless receptors of their husband's opinions. And that is such a shame because in reality, to nurture others, to be a mother to them, does not mean that you have to be a kind of squashed slave or that you have to switch off your brain and have no opinions. You can be a strong, thoughtful, independent, well-rounded woman and also be nurturing and warm and motherly. I think of Our Lady in the Gospels going to visit Elizabeth. This is a teenage girl who is pregnant and who takes herself off on this long journey to go and see her cousin, which she didn't have to do. And she does it all off her own bat. She's not like sitting around at home waiting for St. Joseph's permission to go and do her own thing. She's independent and strong in her femininity. Or the same with when our Lord is, is born and they're in this cave in the middle of nowhere and she has to figure out what to do. She shows great strength and resilience in the way that she lives out her feminine qualities as a mother. Or lastly, we can think of Our Lady at the foot of the cross. When all of the disciples, except for John, all the guys have run away, who is standing there at the foot of the cross? The women. They are the ones with the strength and the courage to remain completely rooted where they are and to suffer with Christ. So being a woman, being womanly, doesn't mean being 
afraid and passive and servile. It is totally compatible with strength and initiative and resilience. The second reason why I think we can have that negative reaction is that sometimes we feel afraid that if we lean into those feminine qualities, we are leaving ourselves open to being hurt and even abused, particularly by men. And in a sense, and at times, that can be true because of our fallen human nature, women have ended up in situations where their boundaries are overstepped, where we're kind of taken advantage of or trodden on. And at times, masculine qualities have been distorted and have become a kind of brute force that takes advantage of women or even abuses them. This is something that John Paul II addressed in his letter to women. He says, women's dignity has often been unacknowledged and their prerogatives misrepresented. They have often been relegated to the margins of society and even reduced to servitude. For this, I am truly sorry. When it comes to setting women free from every kind of exploitation and domination, the gospel contains an ever-relevant message. Jesus treated women with openness, respect, acceptance, and tenderness. In this way, he honored the dignity which women have always possessed according to God's plan and in his love. So there are a couple of things in there. Firstly, that instances of abuse and toxicity they are a result of the fall. Okay, this is not God's original plan for how femininity and masculinity should be lived out. But secondly, this doesn't mean that there's something wrong with femininity itself. The solution isn't to deny or squash our femininity. It's to restore the dignity of femininity. The solution is to fight for a woman's right to be honored and respected in her femininity. And this leads us to the third reason why we might have that negative feeling which is that our society has taught us that all of those typically feminine qualities are less valuable than typically masculine qualities. This is something that Pope John Paul II addresses in Mulieris Dignitatum. He talks about how femininity is not less than masculinity. He says, the personal resources of femininity are certainly no less than the resources of masculinity. They are merely different And it is okay for things to be different. I mean, think about it. We only actually care when two things are different if one is worse than the other. So say that you're standing in front of two doors, right? Maybe one of them is blue and the other one's green. So they're both different, but they both lead to the same place. Maybe it's like a beautiful fairy garden. (laughs) You probably wouldn't particularly care which one you walked through because they're both leading to a good place. But if one door leads to a beautiful fairy garden and the other one leads to the pits of hell, okay, suddenly you're going to find that you have a preference for one door over the other. In the same way, if being a woman is worse than being a man, if femininity is pathetic and lame and masculinity is desirable and strong and powerful, then of course we're going to value typically masculine qualities over feminine ones. And I think this is really the new frontier of feminism in the 21st century, reclaiming and honoring and being proud of the gifts and abilities of women. One of the big mistakes that we've made over the last century is that we have kind of decided that in order to be valued as women, we have to be men, which is actually an inherently anti-woman statement. John Paul II writes that in the name of liberation from male domination, 
Women must not appropriate to themselves male characteristics. If they take this path, women will not reach fulfillment, but instead will deform and lose what constitutes their essential richness. It is indeed an enormous richness. In the biblical description, the words of the first man at the sight of the woman are words of admiration and enchantment, words which fill the whole history of man on earth. So here he's reminding us that to be a woman is a wonderful thing. And rather than abandoning femininity and trying to become the same as men, doing all the same things in all the same ways, we actually need to reclaim and be proud of our femininity. So what does that look like in practical terms? Well, first of all, it means continuing to fight for genuine equality wherever necessary. John Paul II writes that there is an urgent need to achieve real equality in every area, equal pay for equal work, protection for working mothers, fairness in career advancements, equality of spouses with regards to family rights, and the recognition of everything that is part of the rights and duties of citizens in a democratic state. So we need to fight for the fundamental equal human rights of women. But as well as that, we also need to fight for the rights of women to be women. And that means that if you want to stay at home and raise your children, you should be allowed to do that. And not just allowed, being a mother in the home should be treated with the same respect as any other professional work. And not like, you know, you're just whiling away the time until your children get to school age and then you can rush back into the workplace because that's where real life happens. No, being a mother in the home is legitimate professional work. Or in the workplace, say your style of leadership is more nurturing. Maybe you bring heart and warmth to your job as a manager or a doctor or a CEO. That should be seen as a good thing and not a weakness. The jobs that women have typically done, such as teaching or nursing, they should be treated with the same dignity and respect as jobs that men have typically done. And achieving that genuine equality benefits not just women, but men as well. Men should be allowed to be enriched by those feminine gifts, to learn from women how to ponder and listen and notice the small things and be receptive and nurturing. Allowing women to be women will enrich the whole of society. And this is something that we should all be fighting for. Now, when we say fighting for, (laughs) there is an important qualification to make here. A lot of the time, The fight for women's rights has been exactly that, a fight. It's been something antagonistic. It's like men versus women. And there's this attitude that we need to shout men down or shut them down or put them in their place. But true gender equality means that men and women should be working together with charity and in unity with one another. We're not asserting our rights of women so that we can have power over men. We should be working together with men to find ways to restore the dignity of femininity for both our sakes. Now, one last question before we wrap up. With all of this in mind, and going back to that history of feminism that we talked about at the very beginning of this episode... How do those two things sit together? Can we as Catholics call ourselves feminists? Well, the first and I think a very important thing to say is that you are free. (laughs) Okay, feminism is a social political term, not a theological term. The church doesn't have a specific teaching on feminism per se. It has a teaching on women and women being equal in dignity to men. And that's the main thing. Okay, every person should be fighting for the true rights of women. Whether we want to attach the term feminism to it or not is up to us. 
However, if we go back to that definition of feminism, that like dictionary definition of the fundamental kind of pillars of what feminism is, it says that feminism is advocacy of equality of the sexes and the establishment of the rights of the female sex. So we can see that within a true Catholic understanding of what equality means and what human rights are, feminism is entirely compatible with Catholicism. You can absolutely call yourself a feminist. However, I know that some people feel that that word has become so distorted and broad that it's no longer appropriate for them to use it. And I want to reiterate again, you are free. If you don't feel that's an appropriate word to use, you're not under any obligation to use it. Having said that, And now I want to make it clear that we're in the realm of personal opinion here. Okay, I'm not speaking on behalf of the church. I'm not the Pope. I'm just a chick with a catechism. In my personal experience, I found that that term can be really useful in my interactions, especially with my secular friends, being able to say to them, I'm a feminist. And as a feminist, I want to fight for the rights of all females, including females in the womb. Countless babies are aborted every year because they're women. That is a feminist concern. Or, you know, as a feminist, I'm appalled that we undervalue the work of women in the home. I found that using that term can set you on a footing with people where they will actually listen to you. And it's a good way of reminding them that these are actually feminist concerns, that they should care about these issues as well. Now, using the term feminism does often require some qualification. So you often need to be really clear with people about how you're using that term rather than just kind of flinging it around randomly so that they don't make assumptions about you and about what you think and believe. But I wonder if this is less a problem that is unique to feminism and more a problem with just the way that we use language these days. Like we're in such a relativistic postmodern world that in general, we actually have to be really careful about how we use language because people will map their own ideas of things onto what we say. I find this when I tell my friends that I'm a Catholic, I have to qualify that statement and tell them, no, I'm actually an Orthodox practicing Catholic because people take one look at me and they see that I've got a nose ring and a couple of tattoos and I work in theater and they're like, oh, well, I guess you must think that women should be priests. (laughs) And so you have to be really careful with how you use words. And the same is true of feminism. You might find that when you're talking to your friends about it, you have to be really clear with how you're using that word so that people don't kind of get scandalized or make assumptions about you. But that doesn't necessarily mean that we have to stop using those words altogether. Okay, so in the spirit of unity, let's finish by praying a Hail Mary together for women, for the restoration of female dignity and for the true rights and equalities of women around the world. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Awesome. Done like a dinner. So, that's all we have time for today. In our next episode, we're going to talk about how canonization works. I'm so excited for this one because it is such a fascinating topic. Like, how does the Catholic Church decide if someone is a canonizable saint or not? Love it. Can't wait. Have a fantastic fortnight, and I will talk to you later. Bye.